Uh, I'm Pastor Eric, the pastor of student ministries here at Faith. Uh, pastor Steve will be back next week, and he is going to be beginning a new series for us through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so I want to encourage you, as you go throughout your week this week, uh, to uh, spend some time uh, reviewing those chapters as you prepare your heart and your mind for God's Word to be ta- taught to us next week. And uh, come with an expectation of what God is going to do in us and through us as we gather for these next few weeks. But until then, today, uh, we're going to take another look at a name of Jesus. And uh, this week, um, as our goal is every week, uh, in, to, uh, to reflect what the author of Hebrews says, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And because when we do that, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we see who He is, we are transformed and changed by Him. And we become to have a better understanding of who we are and how our lives can be changed and lived out according to that. So this week, um, we're going to spend some time in John chapter 10. Uh, So if you have your Bibles and want to open those, John chapter 10, we're going to take a look at verses 11 through 18, where Jesus refers to Himself as the Great Shepherd. Last week we were in John chapter 8 where he saw and revealed to us that he is the light of the world. And that's one of the seven I am statements that we find here in the book of John. Today is another one. Um, And each one of these statements reveals to us just a little different angle or a perspective of his character. and, And of his purpose, of his mission, of why he's here on earth. So would you um, join me as I read for us John chapter 10, 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Well, Jesus is still at it. He's, uh, he's causing some trouble. He's, he's challenging the Pharisees. And we see it again here in John chapter 10. Last week when we were in chapter 8, we saw that he was challenged and he was questioned by the Pharisees about the validity of his testimony. What gives you the right, Jesus, to declare yourself as the Son of God? Chapter 9, we see where Jesus heals a man that was born blind. And he does that on the Sabbath, by the way, which doesn't appease and favor the Pharisees that much. And as a result, is they begin to have more and more anger and frustration toward Jesus. His popularity is growing as we continue to go through the book of John. People are continuing to follow him. And they're having a hard time containing and controlling that. In fact, their goal is to try to silence him. 
to find ways that they can, honestly, to get rid of him and the influence that he's having on the people. So we arrive in John chapter 10, where we are today, and we see Jesus, he's still with these Pharisees, they're still following him, uh, all the teachers of the law. We see um, the blind man, the healed blind man is there as well, as well as the public. Um, and, uh, and, and so Jesus decides to move into his next word picture, and that is using shepherds. Now among that culture, shepherds were pretty common, pretty well known. Uh, of course, you had shepherds who watched over their flocks, and they were out in the pasture, and, and they took care of the animals. Um, but shepherds were also known uh, to be people who had leadership over others. And by nature of their position, um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law um, could claim that title. But by Jesus coming and declaring himself as the good shepherd, um, he's really in effect telling the Pharisees that they're nothing more than false shepherds. In fact, he even spells it out pretty clearly. Earlier on in John chapter 10, verse 8, he tells us that uh, he labels these false shepherds and the Pharisees as thieves and robbers. In verse 12, he refers to them as a hired hand. Those who are really only in the business for what they get out of it. Um, Later on, he even describes them as strangers. Um, They don't even know the sheep. The sheep don't know them. They don't take any interest in them. They don't have a care about what their needs are, or even how they can meet those needs. And so, as we continue to see, as we go through this section of the book of John, he continues to set up a contrast between his character and his behavior and the character and the behavior of the Pharisees. And now in chapter 10, he uses the imagery of a shepherd to highlight that. You know, he first of all refers in this passage to himself as being the good shepherd. Now he describes himself as good, and that's more than just a nice word or a nice way that Jesus uses to say that he's a kind or a gentle or a, a positive kind of a guy. You know, that adjective good that is used here in this passage is really the Greek word kalos, which could be defined as good, but also can be described more as Someone who's noble or, or wholesome, um, who is winsome or, or attractive. And that's not just referring to external measures or external ways, um, but also internally. So it refers to a character or the values that someone holds to themselves. And so by Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd, he's really describing his inherent goodness, his, his righteousness, his, his beauty. Qualities that are all foundational to who God is himself. Which, of course, Jesus is and he testifies to be. And just to make sure there's no confusion by anyone who's hearing him talk about this, he describes himself as the good shepherd. I think that's significant. That there's only one, and that is him. He's not a good shepherd. He's not one of many good shepherds or... He's not maybe a good shepherd, but it really kind of depends on you and kind of what your understanding and if you feel like he is. No, he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd because he is God himself. You know, the picture that we see of a shepherd here in John 10 is really just an extension of what we see reflected all throughout Scripture. If you look in the Old Testament, those who were led by the people 
We're also described as shepherds. Moses being one very well-known person. Psalm 77.20 says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Of course, we know David uh, being a well-known shepherd. Um, he uh, historically is being viewed by Jews as being the best shepherd. And so he's held in a pretty high regard. You know, we know David was one who spent time um, with his father's sheep. He oversaw that. We also know David is one who slayed Goliath um, with a slingshot. Um, and, uh, of course, we know David as who became king and who led his people during his reign. You know, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they also refer to God as a shepherd. And it's one who promises to gather his people who have been beaten, who have been abused, who have been neglected by the false shepherds of the day. And in so doing, um, God promises a a future shepherd, a Messiah, who is going to come and and gather all of his people, all of his sheep together under the one shepherd. And that shepherd will nurture them and care for them and meet the needs that they have. Ezekiel 34 says this, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. You know, later, if we go to the New Testament, we see that in addition to what we see here in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as a shepherd in Luke 15, where we have the story of how the shepherd will go out if a sheep is lost. The shepherd will go out and will find that sheep, put the sheep on his shoulders, and bring him back home, put him back in the fold, and to care for him and to nurture him. We see shepherds that play a pretty key role in the Christmas story um, in Luke chapter 2 and proclaiming the good news of Jesus' birth. And we also see in 1 Peter chapter 5 specifically how pastors and elders of the church are called to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. In fact, the word pastor actually is from a Latin term which means to shepherd over or to shepherd others. But as we return to John 10, we see not only does Jesus describe and highlight for us that he is the good shepherd, we also see why he is the good shepherd and what he does for his sheep. And the first thing is this. We see that the good shepherd protects his sheep. You know, sheep are pretty interesting animals. Um, you know, we, we know a lot about sheep. We know a lot about their characteristics. You know, they're, they're not that smart of animal. In fact, they could be described as uh, helpless and foolish. You know, and it's probably not news to you that uh, that's the case. It's probably also not news to you that uh, Scripture refers to us as sheep. Not just once or twice, but hundreds of times. Uh, clearly not a term of endearment. Um, just, you know, there's your encouraging word for the day. Um, y'all are like sheep. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, that's who we are, right? It makes me wonder if, is God trying to communicate something to us by reminding us that we're sheep? You know, we all have this way of describing people and we use different phrases from time to time, right? You know, maybe we refer to someone who is as brave as a lion, right? Or, uh, or man, you know, they're as proud as a peacock, you know, for something that they just accomplished. Or, you know, he has been busy as a beaver, Right? We use these terms and these descriptions, but I've never, um, if, if you want to challenge you 
to, if, if you ever want to introduce yourself to someone and make a positive first impression, just go up to them and introduce yourself and say, Hey, my name is Eric. I'm as helpless as a sheep. How are you doing? Yeah. You tell me how that goes for you and, uh, and see if that makes a strong impression. But it's the truth, isn't it? Sheep are helpless. They're lost. They're foolish. And they're not able to protect themselves very well. And when it's time for the predators to come and, and they're hungry for a midnight snack, you know, the sheep are the first ones to get plucked. Not only that, that sheep don't have any strong claws or, or they don't have any way to respond or to attack their predators. They don't have any sharp teeth that they can use to bite or to, to growl. You know, in fact, they can't even run very fast, you know? I mean, the only thing a sheep have going for them is, bah! You know, I mean, does that scare you if you were a bear? You know, not really, right? So when you have that wolf or that bear, that hyena that, that comes prowling around at night and a sheep spots them, their first response is to run away from the predator and actually to run toward one another. And so what do they do? They huddle up and then the, the sheep that's under attack hides himself behind the others as a way to, hey, maybe the bear's not going to find me, you know? Instead, he's going to pluck little lamb chop right over there, the, the, the straggler of the group, you know? Take him, pick him, right? The truth of the matter is sheep need to be protected. They can't defend themselves like a lion can or a bear. You know, if it's not protection from other animals, uh, sheep are in need of protection from other people. You have thieves, you have robbers that present a very real threat to sheep. They often come in during the night and steal them from their fold. And so the job and the role of the shepherd was to watch over his flocks and to protect them from all of these. In fact, when a shepherd is maybe out in the pasture with the sheep and they're too far from the village or the town, um, and night has come, a lot of times the the shepherd will need to find a way to protect them and and either build a sheepfold, find one, or or perhaps maybe use a cave. And if they have to use a sheepfold, they, they, they look for long or tall walls made out of stone, possibly circular in nature. And at the top of those stones, there's no roof and there's no doors on these uh, sheep folds that the sheep would go in. They would actually put either um, thorny bushes around the top or sharp-edged stones as a way to prevent intruders from coming over the wall to grab the sheep. Of course, there's no doors um, that uh, you could put on these, and so the shepherd himself would sit or lay in front of that entrance as a way to prevent the predators from coming in and stealing the sheep. Obviously, we see Jesus earlier in this chapter describe himself as the door. Yet another reference to him and the shepherd. Shepherds also knew that being a good shepherd wasn't just a nine-to-five job. They were required to be all in. It was a lifestyle for these guys. And they knew that part of the job, part of the role of being a shepherd, was to be willing to risk their lives and maybe give up their lives to protect their sheep from a predator. You know, in a similar way, Jesus, as the good shepherd, demonstrated that same care and that same protection toward us. And he modeled it with his own life. But the difference between a shepherd of that day and Jesus is that Jesus didn't risk his life for us. He willingly gave his life for us. 
It was planned. It was intentional. It was purposeful. As an act, as a way to redeem us from the most violent and destructive predator that we have in our lives. A sin and death. You know, they're the biggest wolves of our lives, if, if you will. Right? And, and, and they have only, as their only aim is to overtake us and to destroy us and to leave us eternally separated from the God who created us. That's what sin and death do. In fact, we're helpless, just like those sheep, right? There is nothing that we can do in order to change that. It's in our DNA. It's, it's how we were born. From day one, we were created as sheep who are helpless, who have sin and death as part of us. You know, I think we're often, oftentimes we're, we're quick to, to look outward as we think of all the, the enemies that are out there, right? Oh, the, the, these enemies we need to protect ourselves from, the, the culture or, or maybe certain people that we need to run from and be protected from or, or certain worldviews or, or situations. And although I think it's important for us to protect ourselves against them, I think we do so sometimes when we miss and we fail to realize that the biggest enemy is actually inside of us. This is enemy of sin and darkness. And the words of John 10.10 is looking to kill, steal, and destroy us from the very life that Jesus has brought us to have. But Jesus comes. He comes as a good shepherd. He's like, I am the good shepherd. I've come to lay down my life for you so that I will defeat the wolf of sin and darkness once and for all in your life. I've come to redeem you, to protect you, to do something that I know you can't do yourself. And I've come to know that you can experience that protection from sin and death. Both in an eternal sense that you have forgiveness of your sin, you've, you've been set free from that, and you are now in a right standing with my Father. But I've also come so that you can know and, and see that you've been set free from being held captive to sin on a day-to-day basis in your life. Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So I think the challenge for us here today is twofold. One, we need to acknowledge and make that personal decision to trust that Jesus did come and he did give his life for our sin and to rescue us from that death that we deserved. But I think also we need to come to recognize and believe in the power of the gospel to help us overcome that sin and and those selfish attitudes and, and, and desires that creep into our lives each and every day and seek to rob us of the life that Jesus gives us. Not only do I think we need to communicate the gospel to the world out there, but we need to communicate to the gospel to our hearts in here. Because we begin to allow the gospel to transform and affect our hearts, it will affect our thoughts. And as it affects our thoughts, it will affect our actions. And as the gospel affects our actions, it will impact our testimony to those that are around us. It's a term that, uh, it's what I like to call gospelize. It's an old English term that I had heard uh, from the late great preacher Charles Spurgeon. And uh, what well, he used it to describe the work of what the gospel does in us, but also what the gospel does through us. 
The gospel becomes the core, the, the bedrock that our entire life is built upon, and the way that we view the life and the situations that we have that happen to us. I mean, imagine with me what would happen if we were to gospelize our hearts in such a way, and what would the impact of that be on our families? The relationship we have with our spouse, the relationships that we have with our children or our grandchildren, or even those extended relatives that are hard to get along with during the holiday season. What would happen if we were to gospelize our hearts? What would the impact be in our neighborhoods, in our office, in our workplace, or in our schools? We're walking through the hallways, we sit in a classroom next to our friends as we viewed them. And what can God do? What can the gospel do? In them. Imagine if we were to gospelize our own hearts, how would it change the way that we approach the difficult situations or the experiences that we're dealing with in our lives? You know, Jesus tells us five different times in this passage that the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he did that. He did exactly that. He did it for you and he did it for me. And he says he lays down his life on his own accord. It was his choice. It wasn't by accident. What a powerful demonstration of the protection and the care that our good shepherd offers to us. Not just on that one moment when we choose to believe it, but on an ongoing, daily, day-by-day basis so that we can experience and know the life that we have that's available to us. Well, the second thing is this. The good shepherd also provides for his sheep. Not only does he protect his sheep, but he provides for his sheep. Verse 14, it says, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You know, we already mentioned a couple of traits of sheep. But as a shepherd, a a true shepherd knows his sheep in a very real, deep and personal and intimate way. And his sheep know him. In fact, shepherds have even been known to name their sheep individually. And those sheep will respond to that voice, to that name. And during the process of the sheep and the shepherd, as they interact, as they spend time together, they they begin to pick up on the tone and and, and the volume and, and the inflections of the shepherd's voice. And to the point where they eventually only respond to that voice, not to the voice of a stranger. It's the only one that they listen to. When their name is called, they come running out of the fold right up to the shepherd. Why? Because they trust him. And they know that he will provide and meet their needs. It's pretty amazing to consider that, that even though they have pretty good hearing, they can hear that their eyesight is terrible. You know, they have really good peripheral vision in terms of their directional ability, but they lack the depth perception. It's been said that you can take a herd of sheep and you can put them out in a pasture in a confined area and they'll, they'll graze and, 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 and eat up all the grass, but they'll fail to look up and to see that perhaps there's more grass right along the way, across the way. And so they'll just keep on grazing and running around and, and staying in the same area, eating the dirt or, or, or the droppings of one another and eventually develop diseases and, and, and sickness, which will ultimately lead them to death. They lack the ability to see and to move toward the food that will nourish their soul. And likewise, if a sheep doesn't have access to clean water, that's okay. They'll find another hole, perhaps in a pothole or in a ditch 
water that's likely contaminated or, or has insects or bugs or, or another um, disease. Um, again, getting that into their bodies and oftentimes leading to death. They're willing to look for anything to satisfy their needs, even at the risk of death on their own part. A good shepherd, however, knows what the needs of his sheep are and considers it a privilege to to care for them. He wants to be able to meet those needs in a way that's going to bring them life, that's to bring them fulfillment and bring them health. As we see all throughout Scripture, it's the same approach that God has toward us. Maybe there's no better passage that describes for us the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep than Psalm 23. A very well-known passage. I'll encourage you to turn there for a moment, if you will. Um, Psalm 23 is probably one of the most often quoted passages of Scripture, written by David, a shepherd of himself. But what I find interesting as I look at Psalm 23 through this lens in light of what we've just shared, how beautiful it is in the way that he describes the provision that the Lord gives to us as sheep. Let me just read that for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Will you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I know this is a pretty familiar psalm to many of us. We've perhaps recited it before. But sometimes I think we uh, run the risk of, of, uh, of losing the extraordinary and the familiar. So can I encourage you to look at this passage one more time and just notice, can you count how many times does David use the word he or you in this psalm as a way to describe what the Lord provides for us? I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Eight different times God is referenced as the one who provides for his sheep. We could go on and on, list them all, but you get the picture. You know, as a fellow sheep member, how does that make you feel seeing how your shepherd, the good shepherd, the Lord himself has chosen to meet your deepest needs? According to verse 3, he does it for his name's sake. He does it for his glory, for his benefit. His name is tied to us as his sheep. We are his sheep. And so it brings glory to him, and he finds pleasure in being able to provide for those deep needs that we have. But yet, a lot of times we don't want to lay down in those green pastures, right? We don't want to be led by still waters, because we don't think we always, we don't always want to receive what God gives us, because we think we know what we need. We, in a sense, we struggle for that control and the ability to keep parts of our lives to ourselves, right? Yet only to find that we're the ones that are drinking out of the contaminated water. That is ultimately leading to our death. And I think my junior year in college, I had the opportunity 
to be a part of a summer short-term missions evangelistic team. And uh, our goal was we went over to Europe for nine weeks. And as we were over in Europe, our goal was to look for opportunities to engage in conversation with other college students or young adults and to share the gospel with them. Specifically, we used um, youth hostels, which are cheap, inexpensive overnight accommodations for college travelers. Um, so use youth hostels and backpacking as our means of doing that. You know, and traveling, backpacking around Europe was uh, a pretty attractive thing, and it still is. Many students do that. They take their summer, um, and they go around, and they're excited to go see a lot of the history and a lot of the, the ar- architecture and the, the, the cities and, and the little sights and the sounds and experience different cultures. But some of those students at the same time are also, in the back of their minds, going through some pretty deep identity issues. They're asking some pretty hard questions. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do now after I graduate from college? Our group that went, we were made up of about 25 students, and 12 of us were uh, stationed at two Christian youth hostels in the city of Amsterdam. I know it might sound a little odd to be in Amsterdam, um, but they had a strong outreach and a presence there. And so they would serve the guests, and they were on their staff, and so they would cook the meals and interact with them and build conversations and relationships and share the gospel in that way. The rest of us were split up into teams of four, uh, two guys and two girls on each team, and we were sent out um, in fours to, uh, to backpack around um, what they call the, the backpacker circuit. And so we would actually go around from city to city all around Europe every three or four days going to a new spot, Again, with the goal of engaging in conversation and sharing the hope that we have. Well, what started off as a pretty incredible opportunity to, to step out of my comfort zone, to, to go to the other side of the world, to, to look for opportunities to share the gospel, quickly became something of a challenge for me and the team that I was a part of. Yeah, we had a great first half of the summer traveling around and getting used to the rails and, and uh, the language and and the customs, and trying all these different kinds of foods and things like that. But if I were to be honest with you, the first half of the summer, my team struggled with having any spiritual conversations. We were struggling. It wasn't happening, and we we weren't able to figure out why. On top of that, you have the daily challenge of of survival. (laughs) You know, every three or four days, you're on the move. And as a backpacker, you had everything with you on your back. So you had about a 30-pound, 35-pound backpack with all your clothes and your items. And you're going from town to town, from city to city. You get into town, and you need to find a place to stay. You need to find where you're going to get your food. You need to exchange your money. You need to learn the language. You need to learn where the hot spots are that people are going to be. All the while, you're fatigued, you're exhausted. Mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. And also share the gospel. We had very little, if any, gospel conversations during that time. I even remember having to start to have a sense of guilt um, during that first half of the summer as I thought back to all the people back home that had sponsored me, that had supported my trip financially or through prayer, and beginning to think, they sent me over here for a purpose, to share the gospel. And I have had zero conversations Guilt began to invade me. 
We had our lost our focus and our passion for why we were there. We started to get irritable with each other and angry. Well, four and a half weeks in, we met as our entire group of 25 for a midsummer retreat in this little retreat town uh, in a little center in a small town called Altensteig, Germany. And uh, a little three-day retreat, the goal of that was to give us some rest and some refreshment and to really come together as a large group and to celebrate what has God been doing in us for these last few weeks in our time in Europe. How can we encourage and, and, and enjoy what God is doing? Our director had flown over from the States here and was going to lead us during that time. And little did I know that God was going to use that three-day time of rest to really do some work on my soul and the soul of my three other teammates and prepare us for what was yet to come in the rest of the summer. While we were at this retreat, the four of us were able to spend some private time with our director and just kind of unpacking and, and, and wrestling through some of the challenges that we faced on the trail. And as we talked, we were able to identify that some of those things were, were practical and logistical in nature, and, and so we worked through those and, and talked about those. Others, some of the challenges we faced were team-oriented, or interpersonal relationships that we had, and, and so we had to talk through some of that. But some of the challenges we faced were also personal for each one of us. And as we talked about our half of the summer, our director made the comment that every time that we found ourselves in a challenging situation, each of us was acting out of our own fears and our own anxiety and our own worries. We always wanted to get our needs met first. And so what we thought was, as we get our, if we get our needs met, well, surely that's the need of everybody on the team, and so that's what we need to go with. And when that didn't happen, we got frustrated and upset. We began to carry that frustration along with us, and, and as a burden on our backs, if you will. And then we would later try to pull that out to use that against our teammates as a way to get even, because you didn't listen to my way. Well, as time went on, those grudges, that bitterness, the, that frustration continued to build. And, uh, and we continued to go at it after each other. And to be honest, we, we kind of felt good about what we had because we thought we had what we needed to make it through every day. Until we eventually realized that our ability to accomplish the goal and the mission that we had set out to do wasn't being done because we didn't have what we truly needed. We were so focused on, on holding on to our own frustrations, our own anger, and our own desire to have our needs met that we thought that that was what we needed. And it caused a lot of friction on the team. What God was challenging us to do was to, to release, to let go of that frustration, to let go of that bitterness, to let go of that need to always know what's going on. Even every little logistical detail And to put our trust in Him. He was asking us to release that control, that worry and that frustration to come and find rest in His green pastures. Eric, I'm the Good Shepherd. I'm going to take care of you. I know what you need. Let go of the things that you're holding on to and come and hold on to me. Because I'm the one who is able to provide for you. I am the one who can give you rest for your soul. I will lead you beside still waters. I will nourish you. That's what the Good Shepherd does. Trust me. I'm going to take care of you 
and your team. As we left that midsummer retreat in Germany, our team's first destination was to Budapest, Hungary. And we spent three or four days again getting settled and looking for opportunities in Budapest. And um, I remember walking down a street, a dirty road uh, in Budapest, Hungary one afternoon. It was hot. We were still a little tired, just getting settled. And I was processing and kind of reflecting on everything that, that God had been teaching me through these last three days at this retreat. And, and how he was calling me to give up my fears, to, to give up my worries and my anxiety, the burdens that I was trying to carry, and to find rest in him. And to come to the point where I recognize that God is my good shepherd. And him I shall not want. He's the one who will provide for me. He's the one who will protect me. He's the one who can nourish the deep need of my soul. I found myself repeating Philippians 4, 6, and 7 over and over and over again in my mind. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known to God. And may the peace of God, which guards, passes all understanding, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's what a good shepherd does. He provides peace. He guards your heart and your mind. He will give you rest for your soul. And that's exactly what my team and I were looking for over that summer. Looking for this peace and looking for his rest. Well, we figured that out, and and I'm really grateful um, for that, because as our summer went on, from the second half of our summer, God was faithful, and he provided, began to provide opportunities for us, put us in situations where we were able to confront and be with other people who had differing opinions, and we were able to engage in spiritual conversations. Our summer ended on a much better note than when it began, but it was a hard journey. And it was an incredibly valuable, formative lesson for me. But aren't we all just like these sheep? I mean, don't we all look for different ways to get our needs met? We're always looking for that one thing or or maybe those things that we think are going to satisfy us in our life. You know, I think we're tempted at times to follow other shepherds, aren't we? The shepherd of, of money, the shepherd of status, the shepherd of fame, the, sh- the shepherd of popularity, the, the shepherd of the American dream, whatever that is for you. Because I think we're all on this quest to, to answer this question, who will provide for me? How will my needs get met? All the while, Jesus is standing there with his arms open wide, waiting for us to come to him and to say, you are the great, the good shepherd You will protect me. You will provide for me. Because he knows us. He knows what we need. So I'm going to challenge you today. If you're carrying those burdens or struggles, or or maybe you're, you're following after a different shepherd, a false shepherd, I want to encourage you to acknowledge Christ as the good shepherd. The one who truly knows what you need and is truly able to meet that need. He is capable because he is God himself. I want to encourage you to surrender those areas of your life, just like we had to do on our summer trip, right? Surrender those areas of our life that we're holding on to, that we're trying to gain control of, or or we think our needs are being met through. And instead, come to the Lord who will find rest for your soul. 
I want to encourage you to allow the meaning, the words of Psalm 23, the very well-known psalm, to take a fresh perspective, a, a new perspective to you as you recognize that He is your Good Shepherd. So as we close, I can't think of a better way to close than if we were to recite and say Psalm 23 together. Not as we typically have done, but in a way that reflects our desire, but also our acknowledgement that He is the Good Shepherd. And our desire, we have to find rest in Him. Would you recite that with me out loud? The words are going to be up here on the screen, and then we'll close. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for Jesus being the Good Shepherd. We praise you that he knows us, and that we know him. That he and he alone is our protector. He's our provider. And that in him we shall not want. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who's here who is carrying their own burdens, their own struggles, following false shepherds, Lord, that they would come to recognize and to acknowledge that you are the good shepherd, the one and only shepherd who has come to meet their deepest needs. And I pray, Lord, that they would receive the rest that you promised them and that you provide for them. Father, we ask that as we uh, go from this place that you would impress upon us our hearts and our minds this week the truth of you being our good shepherd. We pray that you would lead us besides still waters and that your spirit would continue to guide us in the path of righteousness. In your name we pray, amen.